Welcome, everyone, to Leadership Lessons with Danielle, the podcast on a mission to create a world of better leaders, one relationship at a time. My name is Danielle Terranova. I'm an executive coach, business consultant, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to my first podcast. We are going to talk about all things executive coaching today, who benefits from executive coaching, and why executive coaching matters in the life of any leader. Let me introduce you to PJ Antonic, an exceptionally talented real estate expert and owner of Oak Development and Design, a full-service home design and build business in my hometown on the South Shore of Hingham, Massachusetts. He's also a television producer, star of the series Heart of Oak, along with his beautiful wife, Lizzie, and a former client I'm proud to call a friend. I cannot be more excited to welcome PJ as my first guest on the podcast. PJ, how are you? I'm great. You missed you missed the most important part. Tell me. That you live in the first house I did. Okay. You tell the story. <laughs> so I, uh, when I started my business, it was a side hustle. I was a corporate marketing guy and sales guy, and... Um, My family business was building homes, and I looked on TV. I said, if these idiots on TV can do it, then why can't I be one of those idiots and figure it out, right? So uh, I bought my first house in Hingham to flip. It was a short sale. Woman hadn't paid bills in seven years. Seven years. Can you believe that? (laughs) Seven years, and she stayed there. It was ridiculous. Anyway, helped her get out from under it. I bought it, turned it over by myself in nine months. Most money I ever made, dollar for dollar. Uh, percentage-wise on a house ever. You're welcome. And then, and then you bought it <laughs> two weeks later. Put it on the market. You bought it. Thank you. I know. It was such a serendipitous meeting that you and I met that way. Um, but tell them the story, too, about how I came to be your coach because yeah, that's my so, favorite. Well, first off, I never met you in person right. for, what, three years? I think it's closer to five. Five years. Yeah. Like, I avoid my buyers once they buy. I'm like, out, <laughs> right? Unless there's a warranty issue, see you later. We're not friends. Um, but with this, I remember you called me, you had a leak five years later and I came over and I was like, oh, we'll just figure it out and we'll just fix it. It's no big deal. And you tried to pay me and I wouldn't take your money. And then we're standing in the front yard and we're, we're chatting about my business and, and, you know, stuff like that. I had no idea what you did. And you go, you, you kept asking me all these like really interesting questions. And I was like, what do you do for a living? And you go, oh, I'm a business coach. I'm evaluating you right now. (laughs) (laughs) And so from there, you very nicely took me on uh, pro bono and uh, helped me out because I helped you out. And then we eventually formalized it. And then you turned into my coach. But I wasn't your first coach in your life because you have a pretty extensive background with coaching. Um, Tell me more about some of the first coaches you had early in your life. Ah, wow, that's interesting. So I grew up in the school of hard knocks in my family business. So there wasn't a lot of coaching. There was a, a lot of yelling and strong expectations and figuring it out on your own. Um, I would say my first coach was my track coach in high school. I was a terrible track athlete. It was awful, terrible. I got my ass kicked every single week. But um, it was fun. And I was coachable because I just wanted to improve personally, whether it was mentally, physically, just emotionally improve all the time. And I became the captain of the team. And I think I became the captain of the team because my coach saw that I was coachable and that I would do, I, I would try the hardest I could to become a better person and a better athlete. But most of all, I would motivate the people around me. And so I became the captain of the track team, worst athlete on the planet at the time. And, um, and so that was probably my first 
if I can remember, that was my first real coach. I made an impact on my life. Her name's Mary McGrath. Still a big deal to me to this day. Side note, she was a world champion badminton player. Mm. And I used to struggle to beat her at pickleball. And I beat her one time all four years. It's a crowning moment of my uh, childhood. Well, it sounds like she set you on a path towards success because she certainly wasn't the last coach in between her and myself. Yeah, so, so tell me more. I know what you're getting at here. Yeah. <laughs> so you're trying to pray out of me that after in college, I started rowing my junior year very late in a terrible team. Uh, but I had a great time and became the fastest guy on the team real quick. And I realized, like, huh, there's something here. Like, I might be actually pretty pretty good at this sport. So after college, I weaseled my way into the New York Athletic Club's training program, which if you don't know the rowing world, it's a big deal. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know how you would describe it, but it, it's like the semi-pros of rowing, right? There's like six or eight clubs across the country, and that's one of them where you go to kind of become an elite athlete. And uh, I somehow weaseled my way in, lied tooth and nail, got in, and got great coaching there and realized that I was a really good athlete. I had never known that. I was like 21 years old. And um, through that eight year, eight to 10 years of my life, I was coached and did everything my coach said. I just did anything they said all the time and listened to them. And I improved. And I saw this correlation of like, if you trust the people around you and you really put the hard work in, you're gonna improve, right? And uh, I went on to win five or six, I can't remember, five or six national club championships in the single, the double, the quad, the eight, uh, won a Canadian Henley um, medal, which is a real big deal. Uh, and then uh, went to several national team selection regattas, got invited to the team. Long story short, I never actually made the national team. I got injured, but it was a fun time met my wife and uh, really kind of set the foundation for how I would move forward with my professional career, not knowing it at the time, right? If that makes sense. Like I was building this backbone of being able to be coached and understanding the fundamentals of hard work and being driven to success, right? And so when I retired from rowing due to an injury, um, I basically took all the energy I was putting into rowing and avoiding my real career into um, my career, right? And uh, I quickly excelled throughout the corporate world because here I am, 28-year-old guy uh, with a lot of world experience and competition experience. And I adapted that to my corporate career and I just skyrocketed really fast and, and things went really well for me. So, you know, fast forward uh, through my you know, corporate career, I always struggled with that kind of constraint of the corporate atmosphere. It's just not really who I am, right? Like, um, I don't mind being chained to a desk if I enjoy what I do and I see that there's a positive outcome for me personally in that seat. But when the way I looked at it in my corporate career was that I really wasn't getting anywhere personally. Uh, I wasn't paying off my debt from rowing from school. Um, and I just struggled to really find my passion. And then when I split my first house, which you nicely bought, um, it was on the side. And all of a sudden I paid off half my college in one fell swoop. Yeah. And I hadn't been able to pay. I was 36 years old. I hadn't paid a dime against my college. It was just compounding interest. I was like, huh, 
maybe I should do this again. <laughs> like I did something right here. And those idiots on TV aren't, aren't idiots. It actually worked out. And so I uh, did a second one, quit my job during the second one, quickly realized that um, I didn't really like any of the interviews I was going on. I was interviewing at the Red Sox, never called them back. Just couldn't, couldn't bring myself to go back to that corporate atmosphere at that time. And um, two turned into three, turned into five, turned into 10. I think I'm up to 35. Uh, and it's been a wild roller coaster of 10 years. It's been crazy. Something you said really struck me when you were talking about how your early experiences with coaching helped to prepare you for your professional life. And it's funny because when you talk to HR professionals, there's sort of a secret rule among them that says that you should really try to hire collegiate athletes or people who have really invested in developing an athletic career because they know how to be coached and they know how to assimilate feedback into performance. Do you find that's true? A hundred percent. And they also, I don't, I don't take no for an answer. Right. And that's purely from my training uh, as an athlete, right? Like I set this goal and nothing was going to stop me to win that national championship. Right. Like I was obsessed and I, I mean, I was rowing 40 plus hours a week plus lifting. So it was like my full-time job that I was selling real estate on the side. I was doing whatever I could on the side. I was acting, I was modeling, I was selling real estate. I was working in a ski shop, I was doing whatever I could to fuel my habit of rowing and we didn't get paid. Right. So there were days where I'd be on a roof framing in 95, hundred degree weather with my dad. I'd go to practice it. I'd shove off the dock at five 30 in the morning. So my alarm's going off at four 45, shove off the dock, train for two hours, uh, grab some breakfast, go to the job site, roof all day in a hundred degree heat, try to hydrate as much as I could, get back to the boathouse at six o'clock, basically take a nap on the mats because I was so exhausted and then shove from the dock at seven o'clock and have another two hour practice. And then I'd go home, eat as much as I possibly could consume and then go to sleep to do it all over again. Right. So there's this like mentality of like, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to let somebody tell me I can't do it. I'm not taking no for an answer. And that, that coachability, that all of that transpired into me being a, uh, a good employee, a hard driven employee that didn't take no for an answer. Right. And I think a hundred percent what you said is true. Yes. So you're describing a very intense coaching partnership. What did you think when I said I wanted to be your coach? What did you think you were in for? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that really sticks out in my rowing coaching, I remember the day where it snapped in my head like, oh, okay, I get it now. I was running late for practice. It was early in my career at the AC. And, you know, these are all people that are out of college. We're all out of college. There's 25 of us training, people coming from Manhattan every day, from Connecticut. We were right outside the Bronx training. And, you know, that's a big commitment when you're a 23-year-old kid that wants to go out at night and all your friends are going out, but you're going to bed at 7.30, 8 o'clock on a Friday night so you can get up and do a double session on a Saturday morning, right? And I remember I was running late one day and I run down to the dock uh, everybody's already shoved off. My coach is about to shove off. And I looked at him, I go, Hey Murph, I'm really, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm running late. I had trouble getting out of bed, blah, blah, blah. And he just looked at me and he goes, 
I don't give a shit. It's not my growing career. Straight to my face. And I was like, it was like, you know, you're an adult being told that. And, you, and it just like takes you back. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, this is my career. This is like, no one's in charge of me. I'm in a single. I'm racing a single. There's no one. You, you can't fake it. Like, if you have a bad day, if you have a mistake, there's not a two, three, or four man in the boat that you can kind of like slack off and they can pick up your slack. It doesn't work like that. And so that was a moment in my athletic career where, where I really like it snapped and I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, it is. It's all up to me. Can't hide. It is all up to you. And you've brought that mentality into adulthood, at least from what I know of you and your professional career. So when we first started coaching, was it what you thought it would be? No. So I didn't really, understand exactly what you did at the time, right? <laughs> like I, I'd never talked to a professional coach or a business coach. I mean, I had mentors like you mentioned at the beginning um, and people in my industry that I look up to that I ask, you know, basically every big decision I run past these, I would call mentors or advisors, right? Um, but I never knew what formal coaching was, right? And dissecting not only your personality and your habits and how you do things and correlating that to making changes with how you operate your business. I didn't really understand that. And so I didn't really know what to expect when you asked if you could help me out. And I was like, well, yeah, I need help constantly. I mean, any business owner that says they don't need help is an idiot. Like you're lying to yourself. So stop lying to yourself and hire a business coach, right? Like um, you just don't realize looking at yourself all the time, you're only seeing what you're allowing yourself to see. You have blinders on. But when somebody else opens your mind to how you're running your business, it allows you to take a step back and really realize like, oh, why am I doing it that way? Right? Like that, that's not smart. Like, and so I guess back to your question, I didn't really know what I was walking into, I guess. Does that make sense? It does. So your athletic coaches and I have something in common and that we're able to zoom out and see things from a broader perspective and help to identify strengths that aren't being leveraged as well as opportunities for moving things in a more positive direction that we can't see ourselves. Because to your point, there's just, there's blinders on. We only see things from our perspective. Well, and, and in like, like we're surrounded by artists here, right? Like guys who run cameras and audio boards and, you know, when they're editing... Or, or they're behind an audio mixer, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, really, I'm kind of letting you know I, I know a lot about production because I went to school for it, right? So when you're editing something over and over and over and you're hearing the same line, the same line, the same line, you kind of get in the zone where like you think it's perfect. But then if you walk away from it for four or five days and come back, you look at it with a whole different scope and you're like, oh yeah, why did I do it that way? That, that sounds terrible. Right. And so I actually, that's the way I approach a lot of my estimates on my jobs. Uh, I, I do one straight through and then I walk away from it for like four days and I go back. Right. And so I think coaching is very similar where, you know, you're in your groove and you're in your grind of your day to day and you never get pulled way up to the 10,000 foot view to really see what you need. And I think coaching allows you to do that. So what was the thing you were most surprised to learn about yourself? Ooh, um, 
I don't know. I think a lot of what you brought up were things that I knew, but I was kind of brushing aside, right? Like as the CEO, founder, owner, whatever you want to call me, boss, I hate when people call me a boss, but as a person that's ultimately in charge of running the business, you tend to fall into the trap of doing way too many things that you shouldn't be doing, right? I think that was the biggest thing for me was seeing how many things that I was doing that I shouldn't have been doing, even though I knew it, but having someone expose that and making me vulnerable to admit it to myself, but then understanding that it's okay to bring people in to do those things, right? You know, but as a small business owner, like you're going to, I'm sure you're going to interview people with much bigger budgets and much bigger credentials than me, right? But as a small business owner, um, it's really hard to let go of certain things because you want to make sure that it gets done right. And so finding the right people to put under you and having someone advise you to help you figure that out, that's the, the hard part. And I think that was the biggest benefit for me as I was growing. But then, of course, the pandemic hit and like ruined everything. But it is what it is, right? So I think, what was your question again? <laughs> I said, what were you most surprised to learn about yourself? I think, that, I think that was probably the biggest thing for me was really seeing how I could take what I was doing that I shouldn't have been doing and spread the load to other people and how to do that. Not necessarily, I always trust people around me. That's not a problem for me, but understanding how to and what things to pass off, that that was the harder thing for me. I read something recently that said the definition of success is how quickly you can hire people to do all the things you don't want to do. And that really struck me because so many business owners are in the position that you're in where it's it's difficult to trust people, to hire people, to know when the right time to do it is. And, and scaling is a big issue. So you struggle with what a lot of business owners struggle with. Yeah. And like the biggest thing for me is always cash flow, right? Like the, having the cash flow to make those jumps and that still to this day, like today, it's still an issue, right? Like, um, I think that's the hardest part of the scaling. It's not necessarily finding the right people. Well, finding the right people is difficult, but you can do it. But being able to actually pay those people and afford it and have the, ca- the, the revenue stream in order to support it, like that, that's actually the harder part. That problem never goes away. Nope. I work with Fortune 500 companies that still have cash flow problems. They need more people to do the work and they don't have the budget to do it. Yep. And it doesn't matter whether you have five people or 500. It's it's an issue that all business owners face. Yep. Whether you're the Mets or Oak Development. Exactly. It's all the same. So one of the things that you mentioned too that struck me is when you were asking or when you were talking about um, – some of the things that can get in the way. One of the things coaches help us to identify is some of our behaviors under stress that might be counterproductive or take us further from where we want to go. What was that process like? Because we sort of know what our stressors are, but we don't always fully understand the impact. I mean, that's really hard. And as part of this process, that was a big thing that you and I exposed. Like, listen, I, I know that I can get past a tipping point and that's never good. Right. And so working with you made me really recognize the triggers that put me past that past that tipping point where I either lose my mind or I just do it myself. Right. And that's not a good habit to be in. Um, And I think through the process, I've definitely learned how to regulate those emotions better, how to 
um, just be a little bit more cognizant of the people around me and how they're going to perceive me when I flip out. Right. <laughs> Let's be honest. Right. So it's definitely been a learning curve, especially when you're ramping up and it's your own business. It, you know, it's much different when you're like, I don't know, when you're a CEO of another person's business and you're making a salary, but it's not necessarily your money, it's different. But when it's your money and your financial neck on the line, it's really hard to push those feelings aside, right? Because you're thinking about feeding your kids and college funds, right? And so that was probably the hardest thing for me. Um, and I think now like I've gotten a lot better at it for sure. And I've gotten much more chill about it. Um, but that, that's been definitely like one of the things that came out of coaching that, that definitely was a positive for me. One of the things that sticks out to me about coaching you is you have a natural ability to understand that leadership and success involves the ability to create results and cultivate relationships at the same time. Mm -hmm. You had a very relationship-oriented business. And I think when we talked about some of those stress behaviors, it was really the, that flipping out, as you call it, would have a tendency to erode those relationships that really were critical to your business and just how, how you want to show up in the world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely ruined some relationships, right? Like that happens. Um, you know, I've had falling outs also just because employees didn't work out, not because of necessarily my behavior, but just, it just didn't work out. Right. Um, that's been the hardest thing for me as a small business owner is the turnover. Like yeah. you get so close to people and then things go south or they leave and it's, you know, it's hard to delineate the friendship and the, and the employee relationship. Right. And so I've definitely gotten a lot more guarded in that regard. Um, and I try to act more like a CEO and less like a friend you know, because I just have to, unfortunately, uh, that's been a big learning curve for me. Um, but it's worked out much better since I've kind of taken that approach for sure. Have you found a spot where you're comfortable balancing the being a friend and being a CEO? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we've whittled our staff way back down now since the pandemic. Um, and right now I'm kind of in the reduce overhead mode because of this economy. And so we're not really hiring right now. And it's a small staff. There's seven people. At one point, I had 22, right? When it came to both my television show and my business. I think we were 15, Rochelle, 15, 14 on Oak Development, right? We were up to like 14, 15 people just for Oak Development. And then I had six or seven, you know, contract employees who were freelancing for the TV side. That's a lot of bodies, that's a lot of overhead, right? And that's a lot of stress. I don't know if I ever want to get back to that number. Um, I definitely need more people than we have now, tell you that much. Like, I think the, the happy medium for me would be 10 to 11. Um, but we need the revenue to do that. The economy isn't great. So right now I'm in that kind of like slow down mode. Um, so I don't have a lot of employees to become friends with. <laughs> right. But it's also allowing me as I hire new people to set that boundary. Right. Which is really nice. So like, it's almost like starting fresh again in the sense that, you know, as I hire people now, they're employees and yeah, I'm going to be friendly, but 
we're not going to be hanging out having beers on Friday nights, right? The old me was, let's get beers Friday nights. Um, and like, we'll still get together as a company, like that type of stuff, but it's not going to be as casual as it was. Yeah. So finding that happy medium is is something that you've learned through some difficult situations, but yeah. also I think finding that middle ground allows you to develop other parts of your leadership approach other than friendship. Yeah. It, it makes me focus on growth strategy. Um, it, it makes me more productive as an owner for sure. And I mean, my best advice to anybody building a business from the ground up, like learn from what I just said, because don't make the mistakes I made and get too close because you never know how that's going to go south. I know that sounds terrible and cynical, but that's the result of, you know, me growing really fast and being too close to people and not having more of a handle on the overall business, right? So since you're doling out advice, if someone was interested in hiring an executive coach to help them cultivate their performance, what would you tell them? I think you have to go into it with an open mind, right? If you go in thinking you're just going to make a couple little changes, don't waste your time, right? Like you got to be ready to blow up your plan, uh, whether you do or not, right? Like you might not, but you got to go in with an open mind, like, okay, shit's got to change, right? Like something has to give here and I'm getting a coach for a reason. You have to allow that person to really integrate themselves into your world, understand every aspect of it. There's no hiding secrets, right? And it's like a doctor-patient relationship. Like there is a confidentiality agreement between you. And so you really got to share it all. Numbers, opinions, emotions, everything. And be ready to make changes. If you're not ready to actually make changes, then don't waste your money. That's great my advice. best advice. <laughs> that is great advice. Because readiness for change is, it matters. It's part of this process. You have to be at least somewhat willing to adapt the way you're doing things based on the information that you're given. Totally. Which is really something successful leaders do and something that all coaches, whether it's athletic or executive, are there to do. Yeah. So my, here's a, an interesting angle that I want you to consider because we've talked a lot about some of the difficulties that you've encountered and some of the um, stress-related behaviors. Let's talk about your strengths because oh, you don't give yourself enough credit for the things that you do well. What is the value that you think you add to your business and to the people you work with? Um, wow, that's a really tough one. Um, I think my value is seeing, finding and getting opportunities to happen, right? Like when I put my mind to it, again, athlete not going to say no. Like when I put my mind to something, it there's a pretty good chance we're going to make it happen. Um, the only thing that restricts me is, what is it? You tell me. Cash flow, <laughs> okay? But if cash flow wasn't an issue, I mean, I'd take over Boston. Let's be honest. Like for me... Nothing is impossible, okay? For example, we've always said like we'd love to take our brand and adapt it to a, a motel, like an old school motel, resurrect it from the dead. And we've been talking about this for like four or five years since we first met. Mm -hmm. And recently, somebody threw an old crappy motel on my desk and I almost had it happen. Like, unfortunately, because of the economy, 
we couldn't get any investors because everybody's holding everything close to the vest right now, right? Um, but within six months, I had an under agreement. I had a full business plan. We had the branding done. We had the Instagram handles. Everything was done. We had the systems figured out. I've never owned a motel, but we just figured it out. And uh, it's going to happen at some point when we have the cash flow to do it. But my point is like, whenever somebody throws me a crazy idea, I'm like, you sure about that? Because I'm not one to just like say I'm going to do it and then never do it. If I say I'm going to do something, you better hold on because I'm going to do it. And I think that is probably my best trait is evaluating opportunity, seeing opportunity where others may not, and then capitalizing on that opportunity, um, which can also be a problem, right? Because then you get scattered sometimes and you're spreading yourself too thin. And I think I'm learning how to really rein that in and stay in my lane. Um, I'd say that's probably one of my stronger suits. I think one of the things I think I'm really good at is multitasking and um, being able to do many projects at once and being able to juggle between everything pretty easily for me. I think that's a trait that someone just has. I don't think it's necessarily something you can teach. I don't know. Maybe you would argue. But um, that is great for my business because we have so many things going on. But it's also could be really bad because I run at a speed that maybe other people have trouble with and have trouble multitasking, right? So I need to make sure I keep myself in check and and really like make sure I'm not overwhelming people, right? You're laughing at me because you know it's true. <laughs> I remember a conversation mm -hmm. we had very early on where I asked you if you were ready to hit the gas pedal on your business. Little did I know at the time, you're kind of a sports car of a person that when I said hit the gas, you floored it and the business took off in a, a, an amazing direction that I, I couldn't have even conceived of at the time I said it. So I'm curious about having that ability and having that, that ability to really hit the gas pedal on your life and on your business and then getting into a situation like you've mentioned with the economy where you can't because of cash flow. It's really, it's really frustrating. Um, to the pandemic, you know, we, we went through the first two years of the pandemic flying high. Everything was great. And then it came crashing down on me when we hit the end of contracts and we realized we were two, three, 500 over budget because of material and labor costs. And in the spec building world, you can't go back to the customer. And sometimes if you don't have X, X, what do you say? Escalation clauses. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, in your contract, you can't go back to the customer. Luckily, we were able to on some cases, but many we weren't. And it absolutely murdered us. Um, and so now we're finally coming out of that. And now the economy is terrible. So we're in this situation where like, I'm finally kind of regrouped from that and mentally, you know, ready to hit the gas pedal again. But I can't because I have a $3.3 million house not selling right now. Uh, people aren't pulling the trigger on projects because interest rates are too high, right? So now I'm in like a whole different world of almost like defense and survival mode right now until rates start to come down. And that's fine. And in a way, it's almost been good for me because it's really like reeled it in and slowed things down and made me think about things. And, you know, I constantly think about how am I going to drive this forward? How am I going to pay everybody that works for me? 
Um, how am I going to support everybody that counts on me? Like that weighs on me really heavily. And so not being able to hit that gas pedal back to your thought is really tough for me because it, it's not allowing me to help people grow in their career, make them more money. It's not allowing me to save more for college. It's not allowing me to do the things I really want to do as a, as a human being, right? Travel more, spend more time with my kids, uh, project manage less. But unfortunately, I'm in the grind, so I have to do it. You know, I think we are posed to put the pedal to the floor in the next year again. Um, there's some stuff brewing that's exciting. Um, but I right now, I'm just in a holding pattern. Reduce overhead, keep it lean, uh, try not to overextend myself, don't take too many risks until we get some of this stuff flushed out. And even though you don't coach me anymore, right? A lot of that mentality is derived from when you were coaching me and learning, you know, how to be a better leader, right? Even though, you know, some things we talked about didn't work out or, you know, some things we talked about ended up crashing. There were so many successes in when we worked together that now I'm taking everything I learned from the coaching and all my trials and tribulations and trying to adapt it to a much more positive outcome moving forward. Right. And, um, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm rambling, but did I get to the point of your question? You did. So what kind of leader are you now? Um, oh God, I don't know. Give me an example. Like, what do you mean? The leadership qualities you bring to coaching the people that work for you, because now you are a coach of others. Yeah, I mean, again, where staff is small, so I'm not coaching that many, and everybody that works for me is really tuned in right now. So I, I don't necessarily have to coach everybody right now. It's more trying to keep people positive and excited to work for a lean team and have a lot of work on their hands, right? Um, I would say I've been project managing so much and in the field so much, it's hard for me to really answer that because, again, like, we're not in a position where I'm going to be really leading, but I'm trying to position myself and my brands and all of my businesses for this next gas pedal push, right? And so thinking about how I'm going to do that now versus the way I did three years ago, I know so much more now as a result of coaching and everything that I'm looking at it with a much different scope. And I think I can lay things out to be like even more successful now as a result of it all. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I think I'm more of a strategic leader now than I was and realistic and not pessimistic, but more of a realist than an over uber optimist. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. And I, I think it's great to be optimistic, but we have to reel ourselves in. You know, there's a lot of challenges. Nothing's easy. Um, if it was easy, everybody would do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but with all that said, there's been some amazing successes the last five, six years. I mean, we have 56 episodes that ran on NBC sports, Boston and NECN of my show heart of Oak. I mean, I forget sometimes how much we did, how many houses we shot. We shot nonstop for four years. We never stopped. And we self-produced it and I sold all the sponsorships. Like I sit back now and I look and I'm like, holy cow, like how did we pull that off? And I had people in LA being like, how, 
how did you do this? I'm like, I don't know how I did it actually. Like, I don't think I slept for four years. And, you know, now I'm kind of like looking back, I'm like, wow, like that's really cool. And I've done 35 houses and we've broken sales records in almost every house we've ever sold has broken a record on price per square foot or for the neighborhood, right? And so sometimes you got to remember, you got to sit back and look at these successes and realize like, you know, you get caught up in that moment, your blinders are on and you forget how much you and your team have done. And, and also you, you need to make sure you don't lose track of the people that help you get there. Not only coaches, but the people that work for you, right? Like those are the most important people, whether it's an employee or a subcontractor or an advisor or whoever, um, you're only as good as the people you surround yourself by, but which is why it's so important to, to have people helping you. You can't do it all by yourself. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a cliche coaching question. Oh if boy. you could make wave a magic wand five years from now and everything worked out, what would I see? I would have a house in Jackson Hole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we. I would like to see our entertainment brand at a different space. And you can read between the lines there. Um, We're working on some things, which is fun. Um, I'd like to be more of a spokesperson in my industry uh, publicly. Um, And I would like to have a little bit more of a solid project management team helping me run my jobs so that I can focus on the big stuff again. Um, I don't know. I guess that's that's where I am. And, And I would like to have a house out west which is not happening anytime soon. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. You have a lot on your plate, but I'm fully confident that if anyone can accomplish all of that, it's you. I, we'll get there. We'll see one day at a time. But more importantly, when are we going to hang out? Soon. Soon. Very soon. Okay. Happy hour tacos. Um, okay. So to wrap up, I'm going to ask you a few lightning round questions that okay. I'm going to ask all of my guests and you can answer as much or as little as you want. Ready? Yep. Who's your leadership role model? Oh, God. Uh, on the entertainment business, it's Mike Rowe. In my corporate world, mm, my good investor and uh, business partner, Glenn Tobin, is probably my role model. He's a really smart guy. What's the hardest thing about being a leader? The responsibility around it. Meaning the mouths you feed, and the people you support. If you could have any profession other than your own, what would it be? Um, I would drive an F1 car. If you could offer any advice to yourself on the first day of your job, doing what you're doing now, what would it be? Slow down. Okay. Um, How do you want your colleagues to remember you? Just as a nice guy, I just want to be known as somebody that treated people well. That's all I really care. PJ, you were a perfect first guest. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about perfect. You really were. Honestly, I really appreciate the time that you spent talking with me and talking to my audience. If people want to learn more about you, where should they go? Uh, You can find me at oakdd.com. O-A-K-D-D.com is our development website. 
HeartofOakTV.com is our television show. You can watch all 56 episodes. Try not to watch the first season. It's very rough. Um, but they're linked. You can get to each one. And then uh, Instagram at HeartofOakTV, although that might change soon. It'll be there for now. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more, head over to my website at leadershiplessonswithdanielle.com or follow me on Instagram at leadershiplessonswithdanielle.